Thank you very much, worship team. I feel like I say it every week, but I'm going to say it again. Thank you for helping us to worship, specifically helping me to worship. That was very meaningful. Thank you. I wish I could tell you today that the sermon is about Mother's Day, but it's not. So I'll say one more time for all the mothers out there, happy Mother's Day. I hope you have a wonderful lunch today, that your family is nice to you, and that uh, this is truly a blessed day for you. But what we are talking today about in the sermon is the last topic in our series, very short series, three weeks. Um, The title of the series is The Heart of Repentance and Forgiveness. First week was April 24th. Pastor Nick preached about repentance before God and drew the text from Psalm 51, where David confessed his sin with Bathsheba. Last week, we looked at repentance towards other Christians when there's something wrong between us. And the text for that was 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8 to 13. The message was called Worldly Grief versus Godly Grief. Today, the sermon is about forgiveness. So far, we've talked about repentance. What is my duty when I have done wrong towards others? But to finish the series, we want to talk about forgiveness. What does it mean when someone has wronged me? How do I respond to them in forgiveness? So I've titled the message today, The Freedom of Forgiveness. The Freedom of Forgiveness. And our text, for many of you, may be quite familiar. For some of you, it may be the first time you've looked at it, but it's taken from Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 35. The freedom of forgiveness. But before we look at the text, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. That you sent your son who was willing to die on the cross for our sins, for our mistakes, for our wrongs towards you, toward each other. And so we thank you that in your great compassion and love, you were willing to send him so that in your holiness and in your justice, those two elements of your character could be satisfied with a payment for sin. And that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. But because of your holiness and justice, that was accomplished. And also because of your love, you are willing to forgive and to bring us into relationship with you, to restore what had been broken. And so we pray today as we look at this text, I'm sure there are people who are listening who have been hurt, who have been dealt badly with who have been lied to, who have been hurt in so many different ways. And so our message today is about forgiveness. I pray that you would open our hearts 
to understand your truth. That we would be open and receptive to your Holy Spirit's prompting. That we would revel in the forgiveness that Jesus provides for us. Cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the topic is forgiveness. Whenever I think about forgiveness, I think of a friend of mine that I went to seminary with a thousand years ago, um, back in the 1980s. was a guy named Glenroy Francis. Glenroy Francis was a classmate of mine at seminary, and he was a fantastic basketball player. His nickname was Liquid because he was so smooth on the basketball court. He was a really nice guy. And uh, I got to know him, and we were friends. But he came from Kingston, Jamaica. That was his hometown. And so I didn't know a lot about his background or his family life. I met him when he was 18 or 19 years old. I was 18 years old. And so we just met each other, and we met in Canada, and I'm he was a nice guy, I thought I was a nice guy, and everything was okay. But one day, I think it was in our third year, one day in our third year, his roommate told me something about Glenroy's background that all I can say is it gave me a tremendous amount of respect for Glenroy Francis. Let me share with you what his roommate shared with me. When Glenroy was growing up in Kingston, Jamaica, he came from a very large family, had several brothers and sisters. He was the oldest. And his father was a very big, very powerful man. And he would work um, very manual labor in Kingston. Uh, that was his job. And so he would earn enough money to provide for his family. But one of the things that Glenroy's father liked to do at the end of the day was before he would come home, he liked to go to the bar. And he'd had a hard day at work, and so he would go to the bar, and he would drink at the bar. And he would often drink too much at the bar. And the kind of bar that he liked to go to was the kind of bar where at the end of the evening, there was usually a fight. And so his father, being this big, strong, powerful, hardworking man, would go to the bar, and when he would go to the bar, oftentimes he would participate in the fights. And because he was a big, strong man, he would often hold his own and win. But one day, when Glenroy was about 10 or 11 years old. His father went to the bar after work. His father got into a fight at the bar after work. Only this time it was different. And at the end of the fight, his father not only lost the fight, he was injured very, very, very badly. And so he left the bar as best he could. And on the way home, he died. He died from the fight in the bar. 
So the next morning, when he didn't come home, Glenroy and his family went out to look for him. They found him. He had died. And Glenroy, as you can imagine, was very upset. His father was gone. The family was in deep financial straits. His father was no longer there. He idolized his father. And now his father was gone. And he was this young boy, the oldest in the family, didn't know what he was going to do. But when he began to piece together the details of what had happened to his father, his heart was filled with rage. Because he understood that if his father hadn't been in this fight, his father wouldn't have died. And so he committed himself that day to say, when I find the guy who beat up my father, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And from that day forward, Glenroy Francis, in his pocket, carried a knife. And wherever he would go in Kingston, Jamaica, he was looking for the guy. And for a long time, he never found him. And in the interim, as he was looking for this guy, someone shared the gospel with Glenroy Francis. And all the hurt that he felt, Jesus was willing to take that hurt. And he gave his life to Jesus when he was about 15 years old. When he was 17, just before, a year or so before I met him, when he was 17, someone came to visit his home. And it was the man who had beaten up his father. And in the interim, this man, someone had shared the gospel with him. And he had become a believer. And he had given his life to Jesus. And because he had given his life to Jesus, he came to Glenroy Francis and he said, I was the one who was in the fight with your father. I was the one who beat him. Glenroy Francis still had the knife in his pocket because the neighborhood he lived in was not a very good one. And when the man came to him, he said to him, I ask you to forgive me. And his roommate told me, Glenroy Francis had his hand in his pocket, holding the knife, and his hand was shaking because he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do. Glenroy Francis forgave the man. He forgave the man. And several years later, when I heard the story, not only had he forgiven the man, but they were in communication with each other. This is long before email and text messages and that sort of thing. They would write letters back and forth between Canada and Jamaica, encouraging each other in their faith. That's what Christian forgiveness is all about. And so we want to talk today about this idea of forgiveness. How can someone like Glenroy Francis look at a person 
who didn't necessarily murder his father, but was instrumental in his father dying. How can he forgive that kind of sin? So we want to look today at this idea of forgiveness before we look at the text. What does it mean to forgive? Well, there's three steps when we talk about forgiveness. When God forgives us, what are the three steps that take place? First of all, the sinner, the one who has done wrong, must repent. We can see that in Peter's encouragement in Acts chapter 2, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us. So the first step to forgiveness is repentance. When we repent, that is when God steps in and he removes our sin. He cleanses us. He takes it away from us. He forgives us. Not only does he say the magic words, I forgive you. He doesn't hold any resentment. He doesn't hold any bitterness. He restores the relationship. That's what Romans 5 says. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. That's what Colossians chapter 1 says. So the three steps when God forgives is sinners repent, God removes the sin, and the relationship is restored. What about when we forgive each other? What is the pattern or what, is the, what are the steps? Again, this is patterned after God's forgiveness of us. First of all, there must be repentance by the wrongdoer, the one who has sinned against you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, when we think about the, the Lord's Prayer, when he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. They're not talking about credit cards. They're not talking about overdraft on your bank account. What they're talking about here, or what Jesus is talking about here, is when, as fellow believers, we repent to each other, Forgiveness takes place and the debt is removed. The offense is removed and finally the relationship is restored. So with that as a background then, looking at Matthew 18 verses 15 to 35 today, I want to ask three very basic questions. Number one, how should I forgive? How is it that I should forgive other people. Number two, why? Why should I forgive? Why should I forgive somebody else? They did the wrong thing. Why should I forgive them? And question number three is the sticky wicket question. Should I, must I forgive someone who is not sorry? What if somebody just says, too bad? I'm not saying sorry. Forget it. How do I deal with that? So those are the three questions we want to look at from the text today. How should I forgive? First question is dealt with in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Here's what the text says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, and by listens to you, it doesn't just mean he hears the words that are coming out of your mouth. 
That's not what listens to means. If he responds properly, if he takes heed of what you have said to him, you have gained your brother. Now, this teaching that Jesus gives, he doesn't just make up on the spot. This comes from the same idea in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, where it says, if you see someone who is committing sin, either against you or even against others, in order to maintain the unity and the holiness of the community, you are supposed to confront them one to one. And if that person listens to you, if they respond properly, you have gained your brother. You have restored the relationship. So you see the pattern that's coming here? Person is confronted, they repent, they're forgiven, relationship is restored. But what happens when things start to go wrong? Verse 16 says it this way. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the next step then is, if the person doesn't listen, if the person doesn't respond properly, the second step is to go with one or two other people to encourage them to repent, to encourage them to recognize what they've done wrong, to encourage their repentance, forgiveness, and restoration of the relationship. Again, Jesus doesn't make this up on the spot. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where it talks about the establishment of the situation by two or three witnesses. So go to the person alone. If they respond, great, we're done. If not, bring one or two other people. Make sure that everybody understands the situation so that, again, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration can happen. But verse 17, if, if the second step doesn't work, what's next? Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, person number one, and then person number one brings two other people. If the person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what is step three? Step three says, go to the bigger group, go to the whole assembly, go to the church. And if the person refuses to repent, if the person refuses to take that first step in the forgiveness triad, if they refuse to do that, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is at this point talking to Jewish people. So to treat someone as a Gentile would be to treat them as an outsider. 
to treat them as no longer part of the body. To treat them as a tax collector is basically saying to treat them as a traitor. Tax collectors were the people who worked for the Roman government. They were against the Jewish people. They were cheaters. They were liars. They were bad people. If this person refuses to repent, then treat them as an outsider. Treat them as someone who doesn't belong in your community anymore. Jesus finishes this up by saying these words. Truly, in other words, this is very, very important. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He has said similar words to Peter back in Matthew chapter 16. This binding and loosing idea here refers to this idea of whatever the church decides to do with the one who refuses to repent, that is what should happen. And that is what heaven endorses. That is the way things should be. He concludes this section by saying, again, in verse 19 and 20, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by them, or done for them, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. These are probably two of the most misquoted or misused verses in the entire Bible. Because often, verse 19 is used to say, if two of us come together in church and we pray for something, then God's hands are tied and he must do what we want because we've agreed and that's it. And so we're going to pray. So let's get together and pray that the Leafs will win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> what happens if two Christians in Tampa, Florida agree together to pray that Tampa Bay Lightning win the Stanley Cup? This is not what the text is talking about. What is the context here? The context is talking about forgiveness and repentance. So if I could paraphrase verse 19, what Jesus is saying, again, I say to you, if there is a dispute between two Christians and they can get it reconciled and you agree, then the relationship will be restored and God the Father blesses that reconciliation. The second one is often used at prayer meeting when only a few people come. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, I'm sure God is there with us at prayer meeting, but again, that's not what this text is talking about. What it's saying is, when people come together seeking repentance and forgiveness, God is there. God is encouraging that. God is 100% behind that. That is what he wants to take place. Where two or three are gathered together to bring about repentance, to bring about reconciliation, I am there with them 
to restore and to restore that fellowship. That's what Jesus says. So to summarize then, what are five principles of how I should forgive? Very simply, number one, keep the circle as small as possible. When someone's done something wrong against you, my first reflex is to get on the phone and call my wife and say, you know what so-and-so did to me? And then she gets on the phone, calls her friend, you know what so-and-so did to David? And then that person gets on the phone, I can tell I'm old, Every, everybody today just texts, you know what this one did to this one? You know what this one did to this one? And then it goes everywhere. What does the text tell us to do? When there's a problem, keep the circle small. If someone's done something against you, if you've done something against someone else, one-to-one, that's the first step. Keep the circle small. Number two, the goal is restoration, not retribution. The goal is not to come to somebody and say, look, you did wrong to me, you have to pay. The goal is to say, you've done something wrong. I want to see our relationship restored. The goal is restoration, not retribution. That leads to number three. Always confront with humility. Always confront with humility. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I need to come to you in humility. Number four, the purpose of all of this is for corporate purity. If the church, and I could be talking specifically about Arendelle Bible Chapel, I could be talking about the church universal. If we are a bunch of people who are unhappy with each other because we have unresolved conflict, how can we be salt and light to the world? So the The purpose of all of this is to restore the individual relationship, but it's also to keep the body pure, to keep the church whole and right. The last principle that comes from this is Jesus has laid out for us these principles, so we should be looking to God and his word for guidance and blessing. Do what it says. Do what it says. That's what we should learn from this. Second question. Why should I forgive? Why? Is it just because David said so? No, absolutely not. Look at verses 21 through 35. A little bit long, but Jesus, rather than answering the question directly, tells a little story. Here's what it says. Peter, Peter's always the guy that opens his mouth and says stuff before he really thinks. But anyway, Peter comes along and he says to him, Lord, you've been talking about forgiveness and I want to look like a good guy. So I'm going to say to you, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now Peter 
is trying to be the good guy here because Jesus has been talking about forgiveness and forgiving other people and restoring relationship and all of that. And Peter lives in this culture. He knows the culture of revenge that he lives in. He also knows that the rabbis, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these ones that are teaching, their teaching says, if somebody sins against you, you should forgive them three times. Three times. So Peter comes along and he says, Lord, how often should... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Should I forgive him seven times? He's like, good one for me. Brownie points for me seven times. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 77 times. 77 times. Again, this number is a number that Jesus pulls out of the Old Testament. Back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, Lamech was talking about Cain. And Cain, remember, Cain got the spot on his head when God cursed him for killing his brother Abel. And so um, God said that if Someone tries to hurt Cain, uh, his revenge will be sevenfold. And Lamech says, if someone tries to hurt me, their revenge will be 77-fold. Now, is Jesus then thus saying, okay, well, everybody needs to buy one of those little pocket planners, and you just keep a database, a list, And so this person, okay, that's one for you. That's one for you. And then as they get closer to the number 77, then you just start marking them in red. Okay, we're getting close to the end. That's it. By using the number 77, Jesus is saying, always, always, always forgive. How do I know that? Because he tells a story. To prove that. Here's the story. Starting in verse 23, Jesus says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. We don't use talents today in Canada. We use dollars. So we say, 10,000 talents. You should be able to pay that back, right? You know how much 10,000 talents is? 10,000 talents today in our economy would be worth somewhere in the hundreds of millions of dollars up to a trillion dollars. So I don't know what this guy was doing, but he owed a lot of money billions of dollars, lots and lots of money. So when the king starts to settle his accounts, he looks around and he sees, wow, this guy owes a ton of money. So he says to him, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
Now you think, oh, that sounds terrible. That sounds horrible. Well, understand that in Jewish culture, this is how debts were settled. Someone would be sold into slavery, but in the year of Jubilee, they would be released and they would be debt-free. So the king is saying, sell all of his stuff, put him into slavery, give me the money earned from that, but at a certain point, he will be freed. Now, is that going to make it up to a trillion dollars? Not likely. But at least the king figures, I'll get some money back out of it. So that's the standard practice. So what does the servant respond? So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. No, he won't. He's never going to have a trillion dollars to pay him back. But he begs on his knees and says, please have patience, and I will pay back everything. And here's the king's response. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. His debt is gone. His debt is obliterated because of the king's grace to him. Now, if that were the end of the story, we'd think, wow, that's a great story. I have a happy ending. Wonderful. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 28 goes on to say, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. You know how much that is? When day laborers would go out to work, at the end of the day, you would get paid one denarii. So basically, what this guy owed was three months' salary. Three months of minimum wage salary. Not a trillion dollars, not a billion dollars, but some money he owed him. So he goes out just, being, just having been forgiven billions of dollars of debt. He sees a guy who owes him a few months' salary and he seizes him and begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, you notice the difference here? The first one said, sell him, but eventually he'll be able to get out of it. This guy doesn't sell him off. In fact, one of the commentaries I read said that if someone gets sold into slavery, they would get 500 denarii for that. So five times what the guy owed, he would get from 
putting him into slavery that eventually he would get out of. But he doesn't choose that option. He chooses to put him in prison where he'll never, ever, 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 ever be able to pay it back. It's not about getting the money. Now it's about vengeance. Now it's about hurting him. So he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now comes the end of the story. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were ticked off. They were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, verse 34 says, In anger, his master now delivered him to the jailers. Now he is in prison until he should pay the debt. When is he going to pay that debt? Never. How is he going to earn money to pay it? He can't because he's in jail. And here's how Jesus ends the story. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why must I forgive? I must forgive because I recognize all that God has forgiven me. The debt I owe to God is more than a trillion dollars. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about rebellion and sin and shame. Why must I forgive other people? Because Jesus is trying to teach us that there is no upper limit to forgiveness. Because all who have been forgiven have received far, far more forgiveness than they could ever forgive. Why must I forgive? Because God's compassion and mercy are great. And if I call myself a follower of Jesus, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, I should be following his example of compassion and mercy and forgive those who have come to me and repented. That's what I need to do. Last question. Based on all that we have read so far. There's no other verses. I'm not going to go to any other texts. What about the person who doesn't want to do step number one. They don't want to repent. Oprah Winfrey, Tyler Perry, lots of pop psychologists talk about, you know, when people have done wrong against you, you need to 
forgive them, even if they never say sorry. Just forgive them. You have to get past it. Just forgive them. Frankly, I think they're wrong. Now, before you start throwing rocks at me, let me explain what I mean. Must I forgive someone who is not sorry? I think the short answer is no. Now, you say, David, you're an awful man. Why would you say no? Because Jesus has just talked about this three-step process. Go to them one-to-one. Go to them with two or three. Go to them before the whole church. If they won't say they're sorry, treat them as an outsider. Where is their forgiveness there? When I talked at the beginning about the pattern of forgiveness, it always starts with repentance. Repent, forgive, restore. If you take repent out of the equation, it's not about forgiveness anymore. It's something else. And when we use these words in the Bible, we have to use them correctly. Forgiveness always involves repentance. So what do I do then? If someone who is not a believer refuses to repent. John Piper talked about this. I'll read the quote to you. When you've been wronged by someone who refuses to repent, you begin to dwell on the injustice of it. You go over it again and again in your mind, and it chews at your insides. You think of things you might say to put them in their place. You think of things you could do to show others their true colors. You are bitter. God is not pleased by this bitterness. And the reason he's not is because it comes from unbelief in the certainty that God's justice will prevail. Romans 12, 19 talks about God being just. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He will make it right. If I try to make it right, I'm probably going to overpunish. I'm not going to underpunish, that's for sure, but I'm probably going to overpunish. But if I leave it to God, God who is just and holy and fair will do the right thing. He also says, John Piper, I'm saying, also says, God has made a promise that he himself will repay all wrongs in perfect measure. His justice will prevail. No wrong has escaped his notice. He sees its evil far better than you do. He hates it far more than you do. And he claims the right to take vengeance. And finally... He talks about Jesus. No one was wronged worse than Jesus. No one got a raw deal as bad as his. No one was abused more. No one was rejected more. And no one was as innocent. So what did he do when he was wronged and his heart was filled 
with moral indignation. 1 Peter 2, 23 tells us, when he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus handed over his grievance to God. Why? Because he had become one of us. And he was showing us that vengeance is God's and that God's justice will prevail. So what is the application of this message for us about forgiveness? I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is two main things. Number one, Christians should be a forgiving community. Now that doesn't mean we accept anything or everything and that's, that's the world's answer. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, everybody's okay, I'm okay, you're okay. No, it's not that we accept anything, but we embrace flawed people who repent so that they can be restored to loving relationships. The Christian community should be a forgiving community. Secondly, I hope I've shown you that forgiveness is a two-way street. You need to ask forgiveness from those you have wronged, and you need to forgive those who ask your forgiveness. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Our scripture reading today was from Psalm 32. I'm going to read verses 1 one and 2 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that there is forgiveness, that there is forgiveness because of what Jesus has done by dying on the cross, by living that perfect life before the cross, and then taking the penalty for our sin. He has shown us what it means for you to forgive. Forgive us our sins because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray for us as Arendelle Bible Chapel that we would be a forgiving people, that we would be a repentant people, that you would restore to us where there has been hurt, where there has been pain, where there has been division, where there has been separation, that you would convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit to take the steps that Matthew 18 talks about, that we would go individually, that we would go with one and two. And if it reaches that point, that we would go to the church. But we beg and plead from you that your Holy Spirit would empower us to reconcile and that forgiveness would take place to your glory. Thank you that Jesus was willing to go 
and that our debt, though great, has been covered by his work on the cross. Help us never to forget that because it's the greatest motivation to forgive others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.